This is the Garden Cinema Film Talk, presented by Michael Chambers and Abla Kandelaft. We chat with filmmakers, actors, producers and film commentators about the art of film. We talk about the films they made, how they made them and the ones they'd like to make. This week, Michael and I chat with Ginette Vincendo, Professor of Film Studies at King's College London and a regular contributor to Sight and Sound magazine. Ginette has written extensively about French cinema and is currently co-editing a book on Paris in the cinema. Thank you so much, Ginette, for joining us today for this talk. This is to mark the uh, screening of uh, French films from the golden age of French cinema. So, Michael, uh, why this particular choice? I uh, I called it the golden age of French cinema. I'm not really understanding any, very exactly what that meant. I just felt there was a golden age that covered, you know, the great directors of the 30s, uh, Vigo and uh, Renoir, and, um, uh, and the great films. And uh, I thought this was a golden age. I, I, I don't know if it's been called a golden age. Yes, you. it has been called a golden age, and I, I think... What, one way in which it's a golden age is that um, in the 1940s and 1930s, also 1950s, French cinema produced a lot of films that were very popular with the audience, yeah. but also um, considered uh, great works of art at the same time. So yeah. you have a film like uh, La Grande Illusion, uh, Jean Renoir with Gabin. Um, that's one of the films always considered one of the best films ever made, but yeah. at the same time, it was very popular. Yeah. And I think with like the French New Wave, French cinema lost that ability to make films that were both yeah. critically acclaimed and yeah. popular. So I think in that sense, it was a golden age. Yeah. Well, it was a golden age for film, of course, all over the world. Well, in certainly Europe and America. In mm-hmm. But the, those French films also, um, the ones you're showing in your season, like uh, La Grande Illusion, yeah. Les Enfants du Paradis, uh, La Belle et la Bête, um, yeah. they're films also that exported well. Yeah. So they were shown uh, the world over, so yeah. everybody knew about them. So that's another way in which it was considered the golden age, because yeah. French cinema, it felt, uh, could please uh, viewers uh, yeah. in France, but also yeah. um, outside France, in, in America, in the rest of Europe, and so on. We also showed, I think, Michel Zero de Conduit. I... I have an enormous regard for uh, Jean Vigo. I think he's underrated, partly, mm-hmm. of course, because the production values of the Zero uh, de Conduit were so poor. He had mm-hmm. no money and yeah. he was very ill, and um, they weren't actors. I think there's one or two actors among them, otherwise, they were kids from school. <laughs> he, he just used, directed them brilliantly. And to me, it's one of the masterpieces of film of all time. And mm-hmm. um, and given the production values, you make allowances for that. Mm-hmm. I think it's just an extraordinary film. I see it time and again, and I just think this is work of genius. It is. And uh, I think with Jean Vigo, you also have um, another dimension of the cinema of the time, which is that it was politically radical, um, yeah. or at least some of the filmmakers were. And of course, Vigo... Um, was somebody who had a very tragic life and, as yeah. you said, was ill, died 
young, made very few films. Um, but his um, father was a refugee from the um, Spanish um, Civil War, and and he he was somebody. You're right. He made very few films, but Zero Conduite and um, also La Talente. Yeah. Um, and they they're both masterpieces. Um, he also made a documentary about Nice, yeah. uh, about the Côte d'Azur. A propos de Nice, and um, and all the all three films are, are fantastically yeah. they're very beautiful to look yeah. at. Certainly, La Talente is, yeah. is a very poetic film, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the films that also belongs to that always precursor of the poetic yeah. realism, which flourishes a little yeah. bit later in the thirties. Um, so is um, that the, scene with the where the, the, the feathers yes. all over. Yes, reduced to slow motion. Yes, I, I, it, it's a film about uh, boys in a in authoritarian, uh, really repressive, public uh, sort of boarding school. Um, it's actually a model, for, of course, for the British film If, yeah. um, and and they rebel. And yes, they have this wonderful yeah. pillow fight, which yeah. becomes very poetic because all the feathers escape. Yeah. Um, An amazing scene where the book is open. And he draws a moving yes. cartoon yeah. on the page. Yes, yes. I don't know if that had ever been done before. Well, I don't know. That's a difficult question to yeah. answer. But yeah. um, it's uh, so sort of very inventive yeah. um, cinema. I mean, sadly, it wasn't seen by um, many people at the time. So, it was banned, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's it's because um, in censorship in France in uh, in the nineteen thirties is very interesting because it's relatively lax when it comes to sexual representation. So yeah. that's why French films have always have that yeah. reputation, uh, that sort of, oh la la, um, yeah. <laughs> they're kind yeah. of permissive. You see people in uh, in the nude and so on, and in a way you wouldn't see in other films at the same time, certainly not in American cinema, which is much more repressive in that yeah. way. But where French cinema couldn't um, touch things was institutions, and one was the military, and the other one was um, education. So... That's why the film was banned. Um, it was considered uh, an insult to uh, education, and and also it's anti-clerical. That's that's the way censorship worked, and also the films that were anti-military couldn't be made at the time. So that's where that film um, yeah. belongs. So most films would just leave those topics, uh, or or actually one way you could. Uh, deal with such topics would be to make comedies. So, like in the 1930s, you have lots of comedies about the army, what they were called military vaudeville, comique troupier in yeah. French, um, and you have stars like Fernandel um, in them, and they just show completely stupid soldiers. So that you could do, but you could not make films yeah. that would attack the French army, for example. Yeah. Is there anything that defines the films from that period? Because they seem to uh, covers so many different types of subject matter. So, is it aesthetics? How do we define French films from the, this golden age? That's a very uh, good and difficult question. But um, I think one thing to me, uh, one uh, important aspect of French cinema in the 1930s is sound, um, because of course uh, sound comes at the beginning of the 30s, late 20s, early 30s. And um, with the coming of sound, um, filmmakers had to adapt, obviously, and some couldn't and just disappeared. So some figures from the um, silent cinema period just disappeared. But sound um, then defined the cinema. And what happened in France is that there was immediately an adaptation of plays, which produced what's called a théâtre filmé, so film theatre, 
and then uh, musicals. One of the characteristics of French cinema in the 1930s is what, what I would call is the art of spectacle, because with the coming of sound, people start adapting a lot of plays and also musicals and, and so on. So French cinema, and you have one uh, good example in your um, season, in La Grande Illusion, even in a film which is a very serious drama yeah. um, about the war and, and it's a pacifist drama, you have a, a, you have songs. Yeah. You know, people start singing, and whether it's La Marseillaise or, or yeah. other things. And when you watch French cinema of the 1930s, there's practically always a song. Um, and La Talente, for example, is, is famous for the fact that a song was added to it, uh, which created a sort of great scandal at the time. Mm-hmm because Vigo had not planned to, to have that, um, because um, they just loved adapt- love songs, music, and also the sound of people's voices. So you get all these great actors from the theatre, uh, like Rému or like Fernandel and so on, who become the great stars. And then, of course, the major exception is somebody like Jean Gabin, because he didn't come from the theatre. And so that's partly why... Um, he um, one feels he's more authentic because yeah. he's not playing the way um, the great theatrical yeah. star mm-hmm. like Rému or Jules Berry. So, uh, for example, a film like um, Le Jour Se Lève, you have this uh, wonderful contrast between Gabin, who's very uh, sober, very in one sense very genuine, and uh, Jules Berry, uh, who's very theatrical. I personally think he's brilliant as well. Yeah. In that different tradition, so yeah. um, so I think that that uh, the theatricality, the spectacle, the music, and so on, it's a very important aspect of the cinema of that period. Yeah. And of course, some are different, but I think it's it's one characteristic. And there's practically no French film of the 30s without a song. Um, mm-hmm. So whatever whatever the genre of the film. So it's often said that a distinctive feature is the is the poetic realism. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to hear your views on that. Well, um, poetic realism, um, it's um, a trend, let's say, in French cinema of that period, which um, arises in a way from melodrama. So the films, if you think of a film like uh, Le Jour Soleil, is a perfect example. It's a melodramatic story. It's it's, it's a dramatic story. Um, The hero dies. um, And it's also uh, a melodrama that has a social aspect. So uh, these films, uh, or La Belle Equipe, for example, by Julien Duvivier, uh, Le Jour Se Lève, even a film like La Belle Humaine by Jean Renoir could, could be yeah. thought of as that poetic realism. And it sort of, in the expression poetic realism, you have, in a way, it's like an oxymoron, yeah. because the films are both realist yeah. in the social sense and yeah. poetic, and um, they're very beautiful and... Um, uh, the images of uh, the, the black and white is um, the photography is brilliant, uh, often by German cinematographers, um, emigre, uh, people who came from the, the German cinema and had a kind or of Russian, mar- Russian, or Russian, yes, uh, yes, and 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 Eugen uh, Schuften from uh, Germany. So people who had um, kind of mastered the the use of black and white yeah. um, and. So it's a cinema that both has a, a social relevance and hence um, the fact that so many have Jean Gabin um, because he perfected this character of the, the tragic proletarian, uh, the proletarian hero who 
almost always dies. Yeah. And at the end, either he commits suicide or he's murdered or he commits a murder himself. So it's, it's always a very tragic yeah, yeah, yeah. story. But it's embedded in the life of working class people. And I think there's certainly a dimension of French cinema that's kind of more or less been lost. Yeah. Um, uh, if you look at the post-war cinema, it's more bourgeois. But at the same time, the films are poetic and they're very beautiful. So it's, it's a trend. I mean, it co- partly comes from literature. Um, there's a, a French trend, um, a proletarian rit- literature from the 1920s. And uh, there's a, a film, for example, like Hôtel du Nord, uh, directed by Marcel Carnet, uh, 1938. Um, also a great example of that. And it's all around the people in a, in a hotel on the canal um, uh, in Paris. Um, and um, and it's an adaptation of one of those proletarian uh, novels. So um, so there's, there's kind of... It's part of the whole current of French culture in the, in the early 20th century, which is embedded in social stories... Well, it was a very political time, wasn't it? Yes. With the popular front. That's uh, right. Front. And then in the mid-1930s, um, yes, 35, 36, yeah. 37, you have the uh, left-wing alliance of the yeah. popular front and a number of filmmakers like Marcel Carnet, uh, Jean Renoir, uh, kind of were followers of this. Oh, uh, yeah, and um, they took part in cooperatives, uh, yeah. filmmaking cooperatives. They, they made films like... Uh, one of my favorite uh, films of the period is um, The Crime de Monsieur Lange, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. directed Renoir. by Jean Renoir. And it's the story of a, a workers' cooperative. Yeah. Um, and so there, Renoir really shows his um, sympathy for. Uh, he, he didn't really, he didn't belong to the Communist Party, but he was a, a supporter, a supporter yeah. at the time, yeah. yes. yes. But, um, and he continued his anti fascism all through his stay in the United States. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, of course, he was criticized for, um, you know, uh, Jean Gabin never forgave him for, you know, becoming an American and and going to to Hollywood and saying, you you can't lose your Jean Renoir, you can't (laughs) not be French. But yes, no, he he certainly uh, was um, very committed, and and so was Marcel Carnet, and even somebody like Julien Duvivier, who I think wasn't particularly political himself, but he made uh, La Belle Equipe, uh, which is another classic of the... And, of course, uh, Jacques Prévert. Well, yes, with, with, and Jacques Prévert, the poet, was, you know, wrote a number of scripts yeah. with Carnet, yeah. you know, like on uh, uh, Le Jour Soleil. That was an amazing team, really, Carnet. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, and Prévert is also, it's interesting because, again, he's a, he's a poet and, yeah. and, a, and a writer. He was a surrealist when, yeah. in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. But his poetry... Um, was very much embedded in ordinary French language, so that's why he was so popular. And um, and his book of poems, uh, Parole, I think, was the the bestseller, best-selling poetry book for yeah. almost of all times in in the French language, uh, because it's language which was uh, anybody could understand. Yeah. These great films, they to me, they have this amazing quality of being having these elements of film noir, mm-hmm. but without the female femme fatale, yes. but nevertheless all the other elements of mm-hmm. film noir, mm-hmm. and this sort of realism, and at the same time the poetry that comes from this romance and the philosophy, they always bring in mm-hmm. wonderful, well certainly Prévert mm-hmm. brings in in his dialogue these wonderful poetic sort of ideas about life and love and death, 
and especially in the Marcel Carnet films, you get this poetry that comes with the realism. So you get this film noir, as you were saying, the death, the murders, and so on. And at the same time, you get this romance and the philosophical sort of uh, view of life, which is amazing. The, the blend. And of course, in American film noir, it's all noir. It's all it's all realism, and these uh, evil women leading innocent men astray. So it's a very different uh, <laughs> yes. approach to uh, film noir. Yeah, you're absolutely right that, um, well, first of all, yes, film noir is always thought as a Hollywood invention, but um, it is actually, uh, the term was uh, used um, before the war uh, to characterize certain French films, like um, the ones you mentioned, but also La Bête Humaine, yeah. uh, directed by Jean Renoir. Um, to me, it's like yeah. the, the epitome of film noir um, and it it brings in that French social um, aspect because of course it's a novel yeah. by Emile Zola um, and it's among railway workers but there is the poetry of the images yeah. you also write that um, there is not the femme fatale and which one could see as positively as um, <laughs> um, this is um, there is not this evil female um, yeah. At the same time, one could see it also differently as uh, a French cinema that doesn't give women the power that they will have in those Hollywood film noir. So that, for example, in uh, La Bête Humaine, um, the, the, the female character played by Simone Simon yeah. um, has a relationship with, with the Jean Gabin character. Um, and she she is a temptress. She, she leads him astray yeah. to some extent. But she doesn't have this... Yeah. Power. They're all a bit passive. Yes. They're beautiful girls, yes. wonderful yes. girls, yes. very romantic, but yes. it's true, they don't have, they tend to be passive vis-a-vis no. yeah. -vis the men, whether the men are the bandits, the gangsters, or the heroes. Absolutely. It's, it's more, it's a more male-oriented yeah. cinema. So, and what happens, I think, or this is my opinion, mm -hmm. but is that the male character, especially played by Jean Gabin, is the one who takes on also female characteristics. He's the one who suffers. He's the one who oh, yeah. is tender and, and, and romantic at the same time as he's the leading male character. And of course, in La Bête Humaine, uh, spoiler, yeah. he does kill her. Yeah. So the, um, it's, it's a different configuration. Um, yeah. uh, it's true. Um, but it is visually, those films are really the precursor of film noir as well yeah. because the, the black and white is yeah. so beautiful. And I once wrote an article called Noir is also a French word because... Film noir was always applied to American cinema in the forties, and but you can trace it back. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, several of these French films were remade in Hollywood after the war, the war as film noir. So, Le Jour Se Lève was remade with Henry Fonda, the film called The Long Night, and mm, La Bête Humaine was remade by Fritz Lang, um, called The Human Beast, I think. Um, so, with Glenn Ford in the in the Jean Gabin mm. character. So. It's quite interesting to see how you know, yeah. they migrated, and, and in both cases, the American film has a more powerful female character. Yeah. So, oh, that's so there's something interesting there. Well, how would you explain the changing fortunes of these films then? Some of them weren't very well received. I'm thinking of La Talente, for example, when they came, first came out, but then they suddenly found more popular support in later decades amongst well, new wave directors. And well, stuff. I think it's 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 more that yes, those films. Um, I'm not quite sure why La Talon. I mean, it certainly was not well distributed, and it, it's it's perhaps 
more avant-garde. So it was uh, it, the popular audience was a bit disconcerted, I think. Um, but what it found later was critical appreciation. Um, and yes, you're right that um, the filmmakers of the new wave, when they were critics like Jean-Luc Godin and, and François Truffaut, uh, they retrieved those films from the past. And of course, some of the people from that period where they modeled. But one reason also was precisely that they, they had, in the case of Jean Vigo, they considered him as an auteur maudit, you know, that uh, Vigo had suffered for his art, mm-hmm. misunderstood, had not found popular success. And that made him into a romantic figure to some extent. Um, the, um, that's, I think, one reason. Also, they saw him as somebody pursuing his own vision, which he was, of course, doing. Well, he um, was an anarchist. Yes, he was an anarchist. He was also a, you know, a poet. Um, he was fighting for his art. And so I think that made him into um, a kind of model figure. Um, but then so was Jean Renoir. And Jean Renoir you know, had found success with a number of his films. So, um, but, but I think it's partly that tragic dimension plus the radicalism of the film, which made him an attractive model. Um, and so the film was, was then shown and then uh, you know, greatly uh, appreciated, I would say critically, more than um, a popular success. But of course, Zero de Conduit was banned. Yes. It didn't get a license, so no, no one could see it. That's right, exactly. And uh, yes. when it was first shown, it was yeah. like booed off the stage yes, by the yeah. audience. You know, it's, it's the, the, the kind of classic case of a... Um, a film that couldn't be shown or didn't find an audience at the time, and then decades later, uh, some young critics perceived, yeah. you know, how brilliant it is, and they retrieve it. Um, and since, of course, Jean Vigo, as you say, has become, you know, like a central figure in French cinema of the, of the 1930s, but for the French audience of that time, didn't see it. No, mm. they, it was not particularly no. known. I mean, they knew Renoir, they knew Carnet, they knew Olivier. Ask you a controversial mm. question. I'd be fascinated to hear your view. As I say, I admire all these great filmmakers of the 30s, and probably most, apart from Vigo, who never really got a chance to show his talent. He died at 29 and lost to us, which is a tragedy. But um, to me, the, the, the greatest of the lot was um, Marcel Carnet, partly because he had Jacques Prévert writing his scripts mm-hmm. for him, which were so brilliant. But he had a, just an amazing ability as a director to assemble a film and convey exactly what he wanted. You felt he was totally in control. What you, he delivered on screen was exactly what he wanted. And um, so to me, he's the greatest of them all. Um, and Jean Renoir, I have funny feelings about Jean Renoir because I feel that a lot of his films, he didn't actually pull it off as he had hoped. It was as if there were elements there that he, he got into the film, other things that just went just off theme a bit, as if he wasn't fully in control of the whole process of filmmaking. That um, I don't know if he edited his own films. I suspect he may not have done. His and girlfriend did. His oh. girlfriend edited them. He <laughs> had his, his, he had his, his brothers kid. acting in them. They were a bit all over the place. Sometimes it all came together brilliantly, as in La Grande Illusion. Sometimes, as in um, Regle du Jour, I feel it was, there are bits of it that work, there are lots of it that don't work. It's, a, it's a, a bit of a mishmash of a film. And I feel that's about and the films he made in America. Some of them were quite awful. So 
it's an interesting contrast with Cardinet and Renoir. The, the one is a master of film, and he delivers a film that's exactly what it is. He's got full control somehow. Mm-hmm. Vigo as well, because of course Vigo wrote them, directed them, edited them. He did the whole thing. He was a genuine auteur, if you like. He total control of his films, except he hadn't got the money to to buy a good camera with or to right. you know hire actors. So that was a problem for him. But um, he did deliver as best he could what he wanted. I feel with Renoir, somehow you feel not on Grand Division is a wonderful. Uh, piece, but sometimes you feel no, it's not quite right. Is your controversial question the fact that you think? I wonder what you think. I mean, that's a matter of taste, but it'd be interesting to hear your view of Renoir. I, I, I agree with you in in a number of ways because um, some Renoir films are absolutely per- perfect, like La Grande Illusion, and some are yes, more um, less organized. Let's say. Um, I think one one reason. Um, would be that, um, first of all, when you look at Renoir's work, to look at who wrote the script. And something like um, La Grande Illusion, I think it's Charles Bach, if I remember right, professional scriptwriter, and does something that is well-structured. Yeah. Um, and I think Renoir was what you might call today a gifted amateur. Improviser, maybe. Yeah. He was, after all, to have the name Jean Renoir in the 1930s yeah. is extremely important. He could do what he wanted, partly yeah. because he had the means to do it. He famously, you know, sold bits of his paintings. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. Did um, he get rid of most of his father's paintings? Well, in fact, not most of them. That no. is a myth which he yeah. he maintained himself yeah. uh, by saying, "I'm an impoverished artist, and look at." Yeah. In fact, he had plenty more. Um, and uh, but he was, um, I think, um, able to do what he wanted to do. And and sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't. So I think that there's this sense of this very gifted amateur who also famously um, liked to please people on, on the set. And, yeah, and, yeah. and so, for example, and please himself. So, for example, with La Règle du Jeu, um, the Nora Gregor, the woman who plays uh, Christine, is not really a, a professional actress. And, and she was um, somebody who I think he was interested in. Uh, romantically, let's say, yes. um, and and you can see that she's not she's not particularly good actress. Yeah. And a lot of the, when you read the criticism of La Règle du Jeu at the time, is a lot is against her, thinking you know why did he cast this woman? Yeah. And so he could make decisions which you might say were like a whim. And uh, so yeah. well, I want this woman. I'm interested in her, and I'm going to have her. Uh, for example, uh, Mila Parelli, the woman who plays the mistress in the is far superior an actress. You yeah. can tell just by looking at the film. Uh, so I think there were decisions like that he made which uh, were detrimental to, yeah. to the unity of the of the work. And and of course, La Règle du Jeu, um, it sort of goes into a number of directions and it's been retrieved later as his greatest masterpiece. But I agree with you in the sense that I, I much prefer something like La Grande Illusion. But then, you you know, there's, there's, there's a professional scriptwriter at work yeah. there and, and which you don't have in La, in the La Règle yeah. du Jeu. So, so that's, that kind of explains that, I think. Yeah. yeah, somebody like Carnet was, you might say, was more of a professional, Renoir more, more of a gifted amateur. I mean, sometimes yeah. brilliantly yeah. gifted. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't always work. There is that dimension and the, the, the fact that he, he liked to, to play with, with, with the cinema, you know. And of course, 
the myth of the myth of Jean Renoir as a great filmmaker, I mean, it's partly true, like all myth, and partly was erected by again the new wave filmmakers who then um, precisely liked the fact that there was that kind of slight improvisation yeah, going yeah, on, yeah. although probably less improvisation than he liked to pretend, yeah. present, because yeah. that again was 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 part of the of the myth. So, the myth. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, that's. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've answered your question, yes, but yes, it, yes. I think it—you're it, it, right. It um, does show you the, the fundamental importance in 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 a drama, a film. It's not just the idea; it is the script. You need a good script. Yes, you need a good script, and also French cinema, uh, certainly um, in those days and throughout most of its history, of course, doesn't have um, a studio system as in Hollywood. So um, the filmmaker, the, the the director, the auteur, is freer. Uh, over his own or her own material, of course, mostly his, his at the time. Um, although there was one uh, woman filmmaker, the that freedom is what gives it the sort of poetic yeah. um, brilliance sometimes, but at the same time also uh, is not always a, a good thing um, that that you don't have you know script editors and and and, and people who. Can see that there are excessive yeah. aspects of this and that, and um, so the freedom is both is liberating, um, but sometimes perhaps a bit less freedom might might have been. Carnes, it's like uh, in England, Ken Loach and his uh, scriptwriter. There's a partnership, and they call their films. Yeah, together. Paul Laverty. And the Carnes have worked so closely mm-hmm. with Prévert. Yes, but even when he didn't work with Prévert, like for example in uh, Hotel du Nord. Uh, it was Henri Janson. Um, I think Prévert wasn't available at that point. Uh, but Janson was also um, a very good scriptwriter and, yeah. and uh, a writer in, mm. as well. And so, the, again, the film is extremely well organized and, and, and has a unity, yeah. which, uh, yeah. which Renoir's film sometimes like. So, so, of course, with Prévert, there's a particular streak of brilliant partnership, but he was also able to work with it. And even after the war, um, uh, Carnet and Prévert made a, a, a film together in the 50s called La Marie du Port, um, which is based on the Simonon novel. And, and that, again, is often disparaged as a film. Like, of course, it has Jean Gabin, so of course, I think it's brilliant as well. Yeah. Um, but a few years later, in 1958, he made a film called Les Tricheurs, which um, was not, uh, I, I'm afraid I can't remember the scriptwriter, but it was not Prévert or anybody like that. And the film was most successful of its year. So, so there was an ability to yeah. deliver um, films that, that have a, a greater unity than, say... He chose his script right as well. Yes, I think yeah. so, yes. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Annette, Thank for you. taking the time well, to talk to us today. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. Thank you, This was the Garden Cinema Film Talk. You can find out more about the cinema screenings and seasons on our website, thegardencinema.co.uk and follow us, send us comments and feedback on our social media, at The Garden Cinema. Thank you for listening.